Hello, everyone, and welcome to Capital A, Unauthorized Opinions on Art and Culture. This is Episode 3, Art and the Wealth Gap, colon, Microdynamics. And it, just like all the episodes between 1 and 4, started out as a YouTube video. Um, so this is just the audio from that YouTube video. And fair warning, I'm still kind of learning the tools of the trade in this episode, so the audio is uh, not quite as good as it starts to get around episode 5. If anyone's interested in seeing the original video, I'll keep it up on my YouTube channel, and I may even do some more videos here in the future. But for now, um, here it is, episode 3, podcastified right before your very eyes. Hello everyone and welcome to Capital A, the series that brings you unauthorized opinions on art and culture. Last episode we talked about what I call the macrodynamics of concentrations of capital, which is to say how the wealth gap impacts the lives of working artists on kind of broad structural levels. This episode I want to talk about the microdynamics, which is to say the kind of like organic fabric of interrelations between people that are affected by the wealth gap and its subsequent kind of imposition of a state of competition between artists on the outskirts of the art world. To kind of ease our way into the discussion, I want to share an anecdote of something that happened to me about 12 years ago. Uh, it was, I think it was Barack Obama's election year, and uh, I was talking to an old family friend who was a kind of proud conservative, and he said something that at the time made absolutely no sense to me. We were talking about kind of the problems facing American society, and he said that they basically all come down to the fact that the American family has disintegrated. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know what he was talking about. To me, it was pretty obvious that the problems of American society come down to a whole range of structural issues like the distribution of wealth, corporate money in politics, etc. Um, but while I'm not ready to go and join the Republican Party or anything, um, I do think that there was something important that he was grasping at. And it's an issue that, the more I think about it, um, is really relevant to what I want to talk about today. So last time I framed the discussion of macrodynamics in a passage from, um, in terms of a passage from Marx. And this episode, to kind of ground the issue of microdynamics in what I take to be its home turf, I want to do something that's perhaps a little bit uncharacteristic for me and uh, take a page out of a conservative thinker's book. So this is a book called The Great Debate by Yuval Levin, who is a self-avowed conservative. He was a policy staffer for George W. Bush. And in the book, Levin tries to kind of ground the contemporary divide between right and left in a theoretical disagreement between Thomas Paine, representing the left, and uh, Edmund Burke, representing the right. And I do think that there's some very worthy thoughts in this book. Chief among them is the, fo is the following series of passages where Levin tries to explain 
in relatively uh, down-to-earth terms, Burke's idea of the kind of natural organic interrelationships between individuals as a dimension of politics. So, quote, the dark side of our sentiments is mitigated not by pure reason, as someone like Thomas Paine or the you know, great radical leftists would have it, but by more beneficent sentiments. We cannot be simply argued out of our vices, but we can be deterred from indulging in them by the trust and love that develops among neighbors, by deeply established habits of order and peace, and by pride in our com community or country. One more passage. This lifelong interest in the natural passions made Burke acutely attuned to the role of habits and sentiments in political life and to the risks of either breaking the habits of peace or creating habits of unchecked terror or power. It caused him to fear far earlier than most that the French revolutionaries, by exploding all the myths that beautified social life, would unleash a wave of mesmerizing horror that could unmoor everyone involved from their habits and restraints. So this is clearly a deeply conservative idea. It's the notion that um, you can't just restructure society based on a few solid uh, ethical or political principles. You have to take account of the organic natural fiber of interrelations between people that's already there. And in its way, it's an argument against uh, radical change and for incremental reform. And um, while this is not necessarily my point of view, I do think that it's a point well worth taking seriously. And in its way, it can even be an argument on the left side of the political spectrum as well. And that's the way I want to employ it today. In a way that was perhaps unintended by either Yuval Levin or Edmund Burke, I want to show how it's precisely those concentrations of capital at the top of the social ladder, i.e. the widening wealth gap, which is most ruinous to the natural fiber of feelings that conservatives prize so highly. And specifically, I want to show how this happens in the art world how large concentrations of capital at the top of that particular social ladder disrupt the natural feelings on the periphery where working artists um, strive to uh, make a living for themselves. Perhaps the most obvious way that uh, the wealth gap kind of sours the natural relationships between artists is the feeling of competition that uh, has sort of developed between artists on the periphery. I remember just a few months ago, I was at um, a party with a bunch of kind of like, I wouldn't say rich people, but like, you know, fancy people. And everything was going great until I was introduced to another artist in the room. And I could just sense this sort of natural tension occurring between us. It was like neither of us liked having to share that room and that group of people with all the potential social and like career connections it presented with another artist. And that's really tragic if you think about it, because maybe if we had met under other circumstances, at a bar or on the street or something, um, maybe we would have really hit it off. Maybe we would have learned something from each other's practices. But that couldn't happen in that moment because the sort of... The feeling of competition imposed on us by the, uh, you know, the larger social and economic structure of the art world interposed itself between us and we were simply unable to communicate. And uh, this is something that's perhaps most 
evident for classical musicians because as a classical musician you are competing directly with every other person who plays the same instrument that you do. Georgina Rossi, the same violist who lent her thoughts to our discussion of orchestras in the last episode, she was in another city a few months back and she just happened to bump into a bunch of orchestral musicians on the street. And the most uncanny fault line immediately presented itself, where all the violinists in the group were excited to see her, um, learn who she was, where she came from, who she studied with, what she was doing in the city, whether she was interested in playing in the city, etc. But the one violist in the group gave her the cold shoulder, because naturally he felt threatened by the presence of another violist in his tight-knit group of people. Another way that the wealth gap can sour the natural relationships between artists is a certain lack of curiosity that develops towards the work of other artists. I feel like a lot of us are always hoping that uh, other people will look at our work, but we're not always that interested in looking at their work. Just speaking for myself, I didn't always look up the work of visiting artists in art school, for example, and I don't always rush off to the nearest computer to, um, you know, closely engage with the practice of another artist I met at a party or something. Sometimes this just comes down to a matter of sheer exhaustion. It's like there's so many other artists out there that you can't possibly give them all the attention and curiosity that they perhaps deserve. It's almost the same feeling that you get when you're like, you know, you hear about a gallery and, um, you know, you look up the artist roster and you see like 30 names you've never heard of and you just feel overwhelmed, you know. I'm sure that there are many worthy and interesting practices out there that I will simply never learn of just because I don't have the emotional fortitude to, um, to patiently examine and engage with each one of them. Another thing that happens is a distinct lack of conversation outside of art school, right? Many of my friends have noted, myself included, that like once you graduate from art school, it's really hard to find those sort of engaging, interesting conversations that you used to have. You know, when you, when you go out for a beer with your other artist friends, what do you tend to talk about, right? Is it, is it really like, you know, um, engaging, engrossing ideas about practice and art? Sometimes it is, but like, in my experience, at least, very often it's actually the boring career stuff. Who got into what residency, who's showing at what gallery, who had a conversation with what curator. It isn't the kind of thing that you got into art to talk about in the first place. So in the best case scenario, the career-like structure of the art world saps your attention away from the things and ideas that you would otherwise like to be talking about. In the worst case scenario, that structure actually creates a sort of culture of cynicism where it's actually strange to talk about the art as opposed to the career. Like, at least personally, I've had this experience where when I would like to actually engage someone about their practice or engage someone about mine, the whole room kind of like turns and looks at me and it's like, who's this guy? He actually wants to talk about art, you know? Um, I remember at a at a, an opening a few months back, I uh, turned to the person next to me, just someone I didn't know, and asked them what they thought about the work. And they looked at me with this weird, like, like incredulity, like he couldn't understand what I wanted from him. He was trying to figure out what I actually was after when what I was after was just a conversation. So this, this like, you know, 
career-like structure is extremely taxing on artists' ability to discuss the actual work, the actual practice, the actual idea and uh, ideas and things that presumably um, drew them to the arts in the first place. And just to conclude with something Georgina Rossi once said, um, this lack of a conversation is actually injurious to the artwork itself, right? Because, you know, artists develop in their practice by engaging one another in ideas. And um, they can't do that if they're just constantly talking about their careers. And she feels, and I'm not entirely sure I disagree with her, that it shows. When you look at the art that's being produced today, it shows that ideas are being engaged in less than career-like issues. Yet another thing that happens is this feeling that many of us, I think, get when we look out at the art world, that there is more supply than demand. And this is a particularly pernicious kind of thought because it's a, it's a clearly economic kind of thought, right? Um, how many of you have, like, I don't know, met someone who... Um, you know, maybe their work didn't particularly strike you or like you didn't think that it was particularly interesting or relevant and you just wish that they wouldn't try to be an artist because there's already so much art out there and um, there's not, you know, nearly enough demand for it, right? I've had that thought myself. And it's kind of strange, actually, because a little while back I posed to myself as a kind of thought experiment the question, is there a difference between art and art market? And to my own horror, for a long time, I wasn't able to find a distinction. It wasn't until like many hours later that I suddenly thought of cave painting. Cave painting was clearly a non-market directed activity that we call art today. And with that thought, suddenly it was like the dam burst open and I immediately, like I was flooded with all of these examples of people making art that had absolutely nothing to do with the art market, right? Um, hobbyists painting flowers in their attics or, um, I don't know, children doodling in notebooks. These are all art-like activities that have absolutely nothing to do with the art market. And the thing is, the art market has only been around for, I don't know, a few centuries. People have been making art for literally tens of thousands of years. And we forget that. We forget that the thing called art is so much larger than the thing called art market because the art market stands a little bit closer to us and eclipses the larger phenomenon behind it. Finally, I think by far the worst way that the structure of the art world interposes itself in the organic relations between artists is by the creation of this feeling of envy. And the kind of subjective quality of this horrible feeling of envy, I think, was perfectly captured in another context by Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno in The Dialectic of Enlightenment. This is um, from the section on the culture industry, where they're describing the way that uh, a female star in a Hollywood film makes the female spectator feel. They say, Thus she apprises the female spectator not only a possibility the that she, too, might appear on the screen, but still more insistently on the distance between them. Only one can draw the winning lot. Only one is prominent. And even though all have mathematically the same chance, it is so minimal for each individual that it is best to write it off at once and rejoice in the good fortune of someone else, who might just as well be oneself, but never is. 
I don't think I need to dwell on how horrible this feeling of envy when it occurs is. It sours everything. It, it sours your relationship to your work. It sours your relationship to your fellow artists. It sours your relationship to the whole world. It makes everything seem bitter, and it makes you incapable of producing the kind of work that you want to produce. It's by far the most destructive um, structure of feeling that is imposed on artists by the art world. I want to conclude this episode with a sort of counterexample. Someone who I feel lived his life in a way exactly opposed to each and every single one of the principles I've outlined here. That person is the poet, novelist, and gallerist Steve Cannon. Um, someone who I am deeply proud to call my friend and someone who I was very fortunate to have in my life uh, for as long as I did. Steve sadly passed away um, on July 7th of this year. I went to Steve's memorial a few weeks back, and um, it was really incredible. Um, it, the whole thing lasted about like six hours, and for six hours, people from the audience just kept on going up and saying a few words, three minutes was the maximum, uh, about what Steve meant to them, and they didn't even reach the end. Like, not everyone who got who wanted to speak got to speak in that six hours. There's just so many people that he impacted. And... Um, it was kind of incredible to watch because over the length of this six-hour period, there was this kind of like theme that started developing. It was like it was like the collective in the room was like together trying to figure out just why it was that we all loved him so much. And I think what kind of came out of that was the general sense that what Steve did was he listened. He gave a shit. He really cared about each and every person that came in to see him. He always asked about you, what you were doing, where you were in your career, what kind of work you were doing, um, like what ideas you were working with, and like how did that conversation with that curator go that you mentioned to me in passing five weeks ago? Like he approached everyone with this deep sense of curiosity that is so rare these days that when we see it, we're just in awe of it. This isn't to say that he was some kind of Pollyanna figure who just got along with everybody. Steve had one requirement of people, and that is that you make good work. If you made good work, if you were passionate about what you were doing, he didn't care about if you were rich, poor, successful, not successful. He didn't care if you stuttered, if you couldn't speak straight, if you couldn't stand straight. He didn't care if you were an awkward weirdo living in a basement, as long as you cared passionately about the work. And his life is testament to the fact that you can still live this way. You can still care about the work and the people doing it, even in these inclement market conditions. So I'm going to wrap this episode up now. If I missed anything, if there are other ways that you think that, um, you know, the market impacts the kind of microdynamics of relationships between artists, please let me know. And maybe if I get enough of these, I'll do a kind of follow-up episode to that with your examples. Uh, next episode is going to focus on the kinds of things that you, as a non-millionaire, can do to make the lives of working artists just a little bit easier. It'll be the third part of this three-part episode about the wealth gap and concentrations of capital in the art world. Thank you very much for joining, and I hope to see you next time.